0: Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where you're, you're went. You can't scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter. Cause Hi, it's folks, all this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 433 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, May 13th, 2010, and we are uh, rocking on again with episode 433. Today we're going to talk about setting up a bug out location. I've done a lot on bug out locations in the past. You can look up some of the prior shows if you want to. Um, I really talked a lot about how to choose a bug out location, what to look for in it, uh, what you wanted, what you didn't want, how to find it, what real estate uh, you know finders to go through, how to talk to uh, neighbors, how to talk to real estate agents, stuff like that. Today I'll talk a little bit about that, but if I don't uh, add that stuff in on some level, the show will be incomplete for people that haven't heard the other ones. and it, Even if you're a regular listener, it's been a while since I've done this topic anyway, so we'll bring some of that stuff in, but what we're going to focus about more today is what to actually do with the place, um, how to set it up what you want and don't want to do once you have it, versus what you want and don't want when you're shopping for it, so to speak. Uh, Again, a little bit of that will come in, and I think some new things. Before that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today. Uh, One of my absolute favorite sponsors, Save Castle Royal. Um, If you want... To be able to go to one place and find not just the things that you need, but some great ideas for how to make sure that you kind of fill in all the gaps with your prepping, check check out Safe Castle Royal. And remember, they have a great discount program. $29 buys you a lifetime membership of Safe Castle Royal. You get big discounts on everything that they sell for the rest of your life for that one-time $29 membership fee. But if you become a member support brigade member, remember you get that for free. That seems to be one of the most popular MSB members, uh, MSB benefits that we have. A little bit more on that in just a second. Next up today is MERS Radio. MERS is a radio technology that does not require the use of a license like, let's say, ham radio. It has a range that's about equivalent to the little walkie talkie sets that you get, uh, from family radio services or GM, GM, GMRS, uh, Whatever, uh, in the store. Sorry, guys, I'm a little distracted this morning by a stew the squirrel outside. Anyway, um, trying to destroy my my bird feeder. Anyway, back to uh, taking care of uh, MERS radio. What I love about MERS, though, is the ability not just to have reliable and far more private communication than you do on the stuff you get at a sporting goods store, But being able to integrate security into it where I have these sensors all around my home where if somebody moves in that area, it'll send an alert to either the handheld or the base station that says alert zone 1, alert zone 2, alert zone 3, that type of thing. So I know when something's going on, whether it's somebody prowling around the front of my house that shouldn't be there at night or my dog trying to escape through the uh, fence uh, out of the backyard. So been very, very helpful. Great piece of equipment to have at a bug out location. And remember, MSB members get five percent off all Merse radio uh, dot com purchases. I recommend you get to the SurvivalPodcast.com to do business with any of our sponsors. That'll make sure you're dealing with the right folks. I also want to remind you connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You'll find links to all of that, including the forum and more at the com. Last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, including, again, 5% off of MERS Radio, tw- uh, the uh, free lifetime membership to uh, Safe Castle Royal, and discounts from about 20 other great vendors. And I've been talking about this Soil Cube thing. Um, something's wrong with my membership software, and the programmer's not available to fix it for me. Uh, But I did get the Soil Cube added yesterday. So if you're listening and you want to check the Soil Cube out, go to the uh, Members Brigade, uh, log in, and uh, go to the benefits page. And you'll see the Soil Cube there along with a special link that will get you a discount of 20% on the Soil Cube. Soil Cube is cool. I'll post in the forum about it later today. All right, with that, let's go ahead and rock on with the rest of the show and get into the main topic. I wanted to start out with just like when I talk about bug out bags. We're talking about a bug-out location. What is a bug-out location? I think a lot of people in their head have a very narrowly defined view of a bug-out location, and not that they're wrong, that that's not necessarily a bug-out location uh, in of itself, but that really narrow view may be preventing some people from being able to set one up or making some people feel like they're going too far to set one up. Uh, a bug-out location can be very simple or very complex, and how... Much it provides for self-sufficiency and self-reliance is totally up to you as an individual. I'm going to tell you right now that when we get done today, I will not have told you everything that you can do or should do with a bug out location. I will tell you many things. I may even come back and do a follow-up show to this one, adding things in. There is no way you can possibly cover everything that should be done and should be stored at a bug-out location in a 45-minute to one-hour show. It is absolutely impossible. So if you're listening today and you think, well, he should have said to add this, he should have said to add that, you're probably right, and it may very well be already at my bug-out location. But, again, we have a time limitation here if we're going to cover this topic adequately. So this will probably be the first in a series. As for what a bug-out location is, I prefer to think of a bug-out location as a fall-back location. They're really the same thing, but one kind of gives you a better understanding of what we're talking about. There is so much hype around the term bug-out in the survivalist industry. There is so much tactical stuff wrapped around bug-out. When people think of a bug-out bag, unfortunately a lot of times they think of a bag that's designed to run off and fight World War III with Not at all. We're not going to get into that it shows on locations. Same thing about bug-out locations. They start to think about, well, bug-out locations should be in the middle of the mountain somewhere where there's nobody for miles and miles and miles around, and there's no neighbors, and there's no roads, and there's nothing. And it would take, you know, a a real effort to just find the place if you didn't know where it was, and heck, you might even get lost on your way to your own bug-out location if you do it right. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do that. (coughs) We will talk in a little bit about how that can actually be a huge disadvantage to a bug out location. We'll we'll admit its advantages too, but if that is the only thing you see as a bug out location, then you're not thinking broadly enough. When we start to think fallback location, we start to become more in touch with what the purpose of such a setup actually is. It's not just for the end of the world. It's whenever anything has gone wrong enough, where you reside, primarily, your home, to where you have to fall back to a better location. And you have several choices. You can fall back to a FEMA camp, and I'm not talking about any kind of conspiratorial stuff at all. I'm talking about, you know, a legitimate FEMA camp, which sucks. You can fall back to a shelter, a temporary shelter before you go to a FEMA camp or a FEMA trailer. Uh, if the disaster is small enough, they, they can accommodate you. If it's large enough, you're kind of on your own. You can fall back to the woods and hope for the best. And a lot of other people might be there with you in a large enough disaster. Or you might not have what you need. Or you can have a location that is pre-prepared for you to fall back to. That is well stocked with things to keep you warm, fed, hydrated, and sheltered. And that may be the best option. In fact, I think that it is. and If you think about it rationally... Would you rather end up like people did in the Superdome in New Orleans, or when they departed New Orleans and went to Houston, or would you rather, even if it's just an a tent on a piece of land that you actually can call your own, with a well-stocked amount of food, well-stocked water, and be completely okay, not maybe the most comfortable in the world, but completely okay, even in that regional disaster, let alone a total breakdown of society, which is something we have to be honest about, could happen someday. So when we look at disasters, remember, we look at anything from the individual disaster that's most probable to the massive disaster that's least probable. But the the two-edged nature of that sword is the least probable the disaster, the bigger the impact, and the greater the implications of not being prepared for it. So that's my view of a bug allocation. So what that means is Anything sufficiently far from your home to not be enveloped in a regional type of uh, natural disaster. And far enough from major cities and towns to not be enveloped in riots and things like that that go on during things like quarantines, pandemics, martial law. Anything that gets you out past the suburbs, even with small towns around, as long as you're on the outside to away from the small towns. So the small little... Uh, rural communities is what I'm talking about. That and anything more remote than that that you're comfortable with. Anything from there to that isolated place in the middle of the, uh, the bitter root wilderness in Montana. It's up to you. But if you're not at least outside of that, that real heavy cone of danger, then it's not a bug out location to me. Now, I've said before, it could be a condo in Austin. If you live in Florida, and I guess it could for a lot of things, but not for anything that's going to have national scope. We're talking more about national scope today than we are uh, about these individual or very, very localized disasters. Being prepared for the worst of the worst stuff to come your way, uh, or at least large regional disasters. Things at least the size of Hurricane Katrina or larger. So that's the kind of mentality we have and I hope we've got across now exactly what a bug out location is. It is simply a fallback location. So what do you want there? You want everything you possibly could have there within your means and that's reasonable and they can be reasonably defended. So I, I want to talk a little bit right now before we go forward about why being too remote could backfire since I've said that already. Um, if you're very, very remote then you can only take so much in with you. Odds are you have to slowly cash things back there over time. Every time you put something on a site and leave it, you run the risk of it being discovered and vandalized or stolen. And I don't care how remote you think you are, if you can get there, other people can get there too. And if you can actually own property there that other people probably own surrounding properties. And if people own surrounding properties, Billy Bob and his buddies probably hunt back there on somebody else's property. And it's only a matter of time before one of the bottom 10% of society discover what you have and begin to pilfer it and steal it. And the more remote you are, believe it or not, once it's found, the more likely it is that it will be stolen. You see, if, if I see this house and I realize that no one's in there, and I'm going to break into it, and there's not another house for 100 miles around, then I can pretty much be sure if I just scout that place out for a day, and I'll see anybody go in or out, I can go in there and take my time and do whatever I like. If I see a house that I don't think anybody's residing in, but just up the street, 50 yards away, down the street, wherever, there's a neighbor that can see to that house. My odds of being able to successfully burglarize or vandalize it go down. Now I know people get their houses broken into every day, right in the middle of the city, it happens. But there's a different mentality in robbing a remote location or an urban lo- or, I mean uh, uh, or a very rural location than there is in the city. People go to the city because it's high density and lots of money, and generally when they break into a house, it's either someone that knows somebody else, and it's vandalism for spite. Or they're looking for high-dollar, low-weight uh, goods. They want jewelry and electronics. All right, and that's, that's burglary. What we're talking about here isn't the typical burglar. What we're talking about here is the person that wants to just take everything you have. The looter. The peacetime looter. And that peacetime looter is basically scum. They'll steal anything from any place that they can get away with it. They don't even care what it is. And if they can go there day after day for three or four days with a truck and load everything up and steal every single thing, they'll do it. The more remote you are, the more likely you are to have that happen. I know that's counterintuitive. It really is. But see, there's one thing that criminals fear above all other things, and it's not incarceration and it's not the police. It's an armed citizen with a shotgun. They don't like those. And as long as you're somewhere where there are other homes around you, that threat, even if it's not really there, is in the mind of the individual. That we, I'm not saying it's perfectly safe. I'm, I'm just saying that you're more likely to lose everything in a remote location than if you're in a location where things are relatively uh, populated. Uh, not heavily populated, but a few neighbors here and there. Small, very small community, uh, rural environment. Um. And that's where I, I, I'm really in sync with uh, James Wesley Rawls on this one thing. If you are not going to have every single thing you have at a bug-out location buried underground, completely hidden from view, and totally camouflaged, the only thing that, that makes sense is to have a line of sight neighbor that you can trust. And I go a step further and say, throw the guy $25, 50 bucks a month to keep an eye on your place, and pay him monthly. Send him send him a check or a twenty and a five in an envelope. Send it to them every month. Don't give it to them for a year at a time. And you might think it's like to keep them working. It's not. It's just to remind them. Okay? If once a month I walk out to my mailbox or drive down to my mailbox or drive down to the post office, depending on how far away I am, and I get that letter from you that says, Hey, thanks. I appreciate what you're doing. We're building a relationship remotely, and you are starting to have a very positive view of me because, gee, every 30 days, 25 bucks shows up for you from me. And it reminds you to do your job. Not that you wouldn't do your job, but it reminds you to do your job. It's the way that I think makes the most sense. And you might have a really good neighbor that says, I don't feel comfortable with it. And I'll tell you how you respond. I don't feel comfortable with asking you to do this without paying. Please let me do that. If you want to donate it to your church or charity, that's fine. But please let me do this. It's the only way that I'm comfortable asking this of you. And that will usually silence anybody. And they'll usually keep the money and use it for their household expenses. It also makes them, if the shit starts to hit the fan and you're in a bug out mode, less likely to start pilfering from you themselves before you get there. There's so much that does for you. It's the cheapest insurance you will ever buy. And if you can find a good neighbor before you buy, it's a great idea. To just talk to a few people and get a feeling for someone that's going to be willing to keep an eye on your place. When I, when I ask them to do this, I would not say stuff like, well, I'm a survivalist and I'm going to come up here if time gets tough." I just say, this is my vacation property. And I'd like it if you'd keep an eye on it for me. And I was wondering if I could you know, pay you 25 bucks a month to do that. And I think you'll find that, that most people that live in places like this that are actually have roots down in them are generally pretty decent people. Um, so, there's a big part of selection there and making sure that the people that live in the area are the type of people you want to be around in good times and bad before you buy. That's as much important as the land itself and what's on it, what resources it has and other things like that. So I really believe you should be interviewing your neighbors before you buy. Go knock on a few doors. Hey, I'm thinking about buying this place down here, this piece of land, this old house, whatever it is. And just say, what's it like living here? How long you've been here? You know, is, uh, you know, and if you you want to shoot in your backyard, does anybody ever shoot around here? Is that okay? Uh, Do you guys hunt fish? You know, what church do you go to? Um, You know, even if you don't go to church, I would still ask that question. It's a great way to get people talking. Uh, Just ask, you know, what bank do you use? Just basic things that anybody moving into a neighborhood would want to know. Where do the kids go to school? What are the schools like? You know, just some basic stuff. And have a little conversation with each neighbor. And it's not so much what they say, but it's their demeanor when you're talking to them. When people are people you really don't want to live around, you'll know immediately. They'll send out a vibe. And as hard as it may be to turn your back on a piece of property, if that person's the one that's adjacent to you, you may want to keep looking. Because if you don't have people you can rely on in the area to at least be good people, to be solid people, you don't want to be there. And if you have a neighborhood where a lot of the things you want to do are just considered unacceptable, even in a very remote area, but there's, you know, let's say there's 10 houses on uh, 100 acres. But people don't want goats running around, or don't want chickens or something like that, or don't want you building a little mini rifle range in your backyard. You need to know that before you spend the money. So interview your neighbors in advance. Um, if you're going to do the remote land thing, I'm okay with it. But you have to hide every single thing that you can't bring in with you. Which means you need to have a plan to bring things in with you. Uh, And that involves probably having an RV and a storage uh, uh, facility somewhere between you and where you're going. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But I want to be very clear on this. If you're going to be remote, if you don't have a line-of-sight neighbor, you should have your property set up where if somebody walked through it, they would walk right over top of everything you have stored, and they would probably never know that it was there. And it's very, very difficult to do. People think that that's you know, something that's relatively easy, but it's not because there's just certain ways that the ground is changed by creating hollow spaces underneath it. So, uh, But you're going to have to go with an underground approach. There's no way to have remote property that's not guarded by somebody if you're not there with a major store of goods on it and not have a huge risk uh, that when you do show up in the time that you need it most, it will be gone. It's 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 almost inevitable that unless it's very well hidden, it will get found and it will get stolen. Uh, having things like a little a little camp or something set up on it, and there is there is an opportunity here to kind of use some misdirection. One thing you might do is build like a little old trapper's cabin or something like that, and put some stuff in it. And your hope, then, is that you, you don't really need what's in there, that it's extra, it's icing on the cake, so to speak. And that if the location is found, that because that's there, the person won't look any further. They'll take what they want from what you have. Expect windows to be broken. I, I you know, I have some glass hidden where you can just replace a couple windows in a little shack you build Because there's something about scum that they're not content to just steal what you have. They have to damage it. And it's almost inevitable that when they do that, they're going to put a rock through a window. I, I don't know what it is with people that do this. The, the vandalistic nature of the douchebag that will steal your stuff. But it, it's, I've seen it over and over and over and over. It's not just theft. They have to damage while they're doing it. There's something wrong in their heads. That is why some of them need to meet an old lady with some double eye. And if a few more of them did, maybe they'd go see a psychiatrist instead of steal stuff. But it ain't going to happen anytime soon, folks. So you have to be smarter than scum. And I know that's harsh, but it's reality. And what we're talking about is setting up a place you can fall back to at a time of your greatest need. And if you're not aware of these things, and if you have this happy-go-lucky view of the world, you know, even as a survivalist, if your outlook is too positive on humanity then when you most need it, it may not be there. You have to think about the fact that if things are starting to spiral out of control to the point where you're willing to bug out and go to this remote location, they've already been going out of control for a while. And there's a time delay for you to get from where you are to where you're going. And in that time, if somebody's come across your location, and even if they didn't damage it or steal from it, they just made a mental note of where it is, that may be one of the first places they go to loot and steal from. So please make sure that you really think about this before you go with the complete remote nobody around model. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it has its own innate limitations that people don't think about. So if you're going to go remote, again, I really want you to think about how much can you carry in with you. You're definitely going to have to go with food storage items that are the prepared long-term storage items like Mountain House and providing pantry, yoders, uh, all types of things like that. You need to be storing them underground. We'll talk about some of the advantages of doing that, even on a, a regular piece of property anyway. But it is not going to be a place you're going to be able to go out and have a nice little cabin on, you know, a really nice little vacation cabin. Um the two-legged scum of the world, two-legged rats of the world will find it, and they will steal from you if you do not have some type of additional security on the property. Um, and even if you set an alarm system up or something like that, these remote locations, the local town sheriff and all, he's going to get there an hour after it goes off, even though he wants to be there immediately, and it's going to be too late. And uh, the thieves of the world know how to do their jobs very well. So with uh, this is why I'm a big fan of having the small community around you. Even if they're not in the common goal of prepping, most people in these types of locations are somewhat preppers themselves because it's a pain in the ass to go to the grocery store when it's half an hour or more away versus five minutes down the street. Now, remote or not, I'm going to tell you the one thing you absolutely never want in a bug-out location uh, unless you have the neighbor that you're paying to watch paid to take care of it for you. Um, and you know that they're going to do it reliably. And that's a lawn. There is nothing... Absolutely nothing that sends out uh, uh, an alarm to a thief to this house is empty than a house with a lawn that's two feet high that hasn't been mowed for three or four weeks. if you have a property that's surrounded by woods and it hasn't been you know you've got some open spaces that haven't been weeded or whatever it doesn't do the same thing it 's just a wooded property maybe that's a place where some old codger lives that that likes it that way and is more likely to shoot me but when you have a house with a lawn that's neatly mowed, even even if they're far apart, another house with a lawn that's neatly mowed, and then a house with a lawn where the grass is two feet high, that says to anybody that comes by, this house is de- des- uh, deserted, and I know it's deserted. And I am very likely at that point to choose that house as a target for break-in if I'm a thief. So you never want a lawn at your bug-out location. I know it sounds simple but it's really important. And what it also means is if you find that perfect little bug out location and it has that lawn, you need to hire somebody to take care of that lawn. You need to factor that into your ongoing expenses as long as you're not there. Because unless that is done, it's a broadcast signal, come steal whatever I have in here, if, if that makes sense. Um, the next thing I want you to, talk, uh, to think about is the risk versus reward with neighbors. I said I would give you both sides of the remote theory. I've given you the downside um, let me give you the upside. If you have neighbors, the neighbors themselves can be a threat. Uh, if shit's really hitting the fan and your neighbor's been watching your house and he knows you come up there once every four months and he knows you'll be on your, on your way and he's decided to get the hell out of there, he might take everything you have on the way out. If you go there during the shit hit the fan, those other people that know you and know you're there and know you've come there have reason to believe that you are somewhat self-sufficient or you want to come there and may come to you looking for help. Now, one of the things that I really believe is it is easier to feed people than shoot them. And corn's pretty cheap, so if you were to get yourself, let's say, ten five-gallon buckets full of dry-shelled corn, at least you could give people that, and you could tell them this is all I have. And I'd even have it, you know, a few buckets of it stacked in front of the door in that situation, so that you'd be like, oh, you know, this is all I have, but I'll give you some. Well, it's not the greatest thing in the world to eat, and if there's anything they can do for themselves, they'll do it before they come back for more corn. And eventually you can say, I'm out. I don't have any more. Now, you might be lying. You might be letting other people go hungry, but you may get into a situation where that's necessary. I don't really foresee that, that we'll ever get into a point where it's that scarce if we're prepared. And if we think, and if we go into the right locations, and if we build the right coalitions with our neighbors, there is a point once a neighbor is trusted to begin to talk to them a little bit about preparedness, around your bug out location. Um, If you do that, the more people around you that are prepared, the less of this uh, fear that we have to have that somebody's going to come and want what we have. And remember, most of the disasters that we'll have are relatively short in duration. Uh, Even things up to a year, we can get by with what we have if we're smart, and we can still help other people to a degree. We can't help everybody, but we can damn sure help the people that we're closest to, that we've relied on the past, and understand that they may come to rely on us. We do have to think about that neighbor threat. It's also the case that you could be uh, in a community where there's uh, ten houses, again, ten houses on a couple hundred acres. Everybody's spaced out, people can see each other, but everybody's cool, and there's that one asshole, And it's almost inevitable. Is it inevitable that if you have a place somewhere remote that someone will steal from it. If you move to a place with uh, a reasonable uh, amount of people in it, one of them is going to be a dick. And there's no other way to put it. And I found it everywhere I've ever gone. Usually when you talk to the neighbors, yeah, everybody here is cool except that guy down there. And uh, generally speaking, when you hear that from more than one person... It's not one-sided. They're right. That one guy down there is a problem. So you are likely to have that no matter where you go. Sooner or later, you'll have to settle for that. If you go remote, if you go truly remote, if you go in a place where you can't see anybody else, then you know what? You don't have that problem. The thing about these remote locations, though, is if you're going to live there, all of the negatives go away. And what I mean by that is instead of talking about bug-out location, if we're talking about a homestead, it may be the most ideal situation at least to go just a little bit further and have enough land where you don't see anybody else. Especially if you have that little, I mean the perfect scenario to me is that little community of 10 to 20 houses and then some kind of a buffer zone and you're back behind that. When you do that, um, you're you're creating a situation where anybody that would come and do harm to your property kind of has this blocking mechanism in front of them. You have to deal with, Other people first, especially during a time and a period where the shit is at the fan and people are on a heightened alert. You know, and even Granny's got her gun. And, again, I hate to talk about the really extreme survival situations, especially because I know new people are listening to this show every day. And to some some folks, that's a turn-off. But if we're going to accept the fact that our house could burn down, we have to accept the fact that something could happen that causes everybody's house to burn down. And, And that is reality. We do have to be in touch with that. So, if you're looking at a homestead, I'm a little bit more open to the total remote location. Remember, we're talking about a place we may have to rely on. And having some people around to provide even just a little bit of extra security uh, has its advantages. Again, though, those neighbors can become a detriment. You have to weigh and balance that for yourself. If you said, Jack, I'm going to buy my remote piece and do the best I can with it, I'd say, good for you. And if you said, I'm going to go with a small community or even a little bit closer to town, Good for you. You do whatever makes most sense. But just follow some basic common sense rules as you're setting things up. Um, The next thing I want to talk about is one of the first things you should be doing with any property, whether you have a structure on it or not, is begin enhancing what's there from a standpoint of wild plant life and wild game. So if you have a piece of property that has a lot of hickory trees on it, creating small mini swales and water catchment around the trees just to make sure those trees get maximum amount of water and get maximum mass production. Those two things. It produces hickory nuts, which are edible in greater quantity. And because there's a greater quantity of hickory nuts, it attracts more game like white deer and squirrels. And that's the same with oak trees. It's the same with, with uh, cranberry, blueberry, raspberry, uh, blackberry, uh, wild strawberry, wild muscadine. Anything that grows on your property, native and naturally, make sure that you're enhancing it. And it doesn't take a lot of work. Often, the biggest thing you can do is natural mulches around uh, the base of these things and creating small water catchments around them as well. Uh, Doing things like taking a a, a stand of, uh, let's say, berry bushes and getting a bunch of rocks and, and creating kind of a depression around the berry dish surrounding that depression with about two feet wide uh, diameter rock and kind of following those rocks around there, those rocks then don't let the water permeate into the ground. It runs off, it runs downhill into your catchment. And by doing that, you can allow, let's say, five or six times the water catchment for that plant that it would get naturally. So it's going to thrive even better. Now, if you go in that centerpiece, and just take the natural stuff that's available on your property, like oak leaves and and other leaves and fallen branches, and mulch that, then you retain the moisture. Of course, as you're retaining the moisture, that bottom layer of mulch is being composted down into the soil, and you're building the soil. And it's all very, very passive, and it's all very, very hidden. The person that goes by your property doesn't see the manicured garden, All they see is oak trees and and bushes and shrubs and things that look like anything anybody else would have. And when it comes to start doing your plantings, while you're not there, while you're not there to provide any level of security, you need to think the same way. You need to plant either plants that would be native to the area anyway, or that can cope without being taken care of, and you need to plant them in fashions where they blend into the surroundings. You come to my place here in Arlington right now, I've got a backyard backyard, Beautiful gardens. I've got stands of corn back there, tomatoes, peppers, all kinds of stuff like that. Real obvious what it is. If you set up a stand of corn at a remote location you only get to once every two months and somebody steals your corn, even if it manages to grow without you there, um, you kind of ask for it. It's, it's really obvious when you do things like that. But there's a lot of grains that you can plant that will do very well and reseed themselves, like buckwheat, uh, like amaranth, like quinoa. Um, There's just a ton of things you can do like that that blend right into the surroundings. And with a a place as small as, let's say, five acres, ten acres, something like that, even two acres, uh, that's wooded with some open patches, you can have a tremendous amount of food uh, throughout nine months of the year in most of the United States. I know some of you live in some really cold places, uh, but if you're there, you're probably already fairly remote anyway. Um, But if you do that approach between the native plants and the plantings that are perennial and reseeding and keep that blended approach, no one looks and goes, oh, look at all that food. All they see is your place doesn't look any different than anybody else's place. And that also makes you less susceptible to pests because, remember, you're not there to identify that this plant is being predated on and plant some kind of supporting plant. Um, it's a great way to use what are called seed balls. So you take things like, again, like amaranth, quinoa, buckwheat, all these things that will just grow, uh, pot marigold, um, anything that you want that, that is kind of can take care of itself and look after itself. And you mix up some clay and potting soil, and you um, you mix that with uh, your seeds. And you can just take seeds, you can do one variety and control kind of where they are, or what's probably more effective is just put all your seeds in that mix and mix that all together. And you want the clay to be, you know, clay you get out of the ground, but you want it pounded to a powder. And you mix that with water until you can make little balls out of it. You make a bunch of little balls about the size of a shooter marble. And uh, not a shooter marble, the little marbles that you would shoot at, right? Not the big giant ones, but the small marble. And you put them all out in the sun to dry. And then you just take them to wherever you want to, uh, to, to get these plants going, and you toss them. You just throw them out. And they sit there in that little hard, dry piece of uh, clay soil, and they don't grow until it rains. And when it rains, that little ball melts to the ground, and you have a perfectly little fertilized, moisture containing capsule. And those seeds put roots down into the native soil, and they start growing. And you can make thousands and thousands and thousands of these things. And every time you go to your location, you just pitch some, as long as it's the right time of the year to do it. And over a year or two, you can have a tremendous amount of diverse, plant life that provides edible food. And you do things, again, this is where you bring in natives or you bring in uh, things that will become native like lamb's quarters into the mix, right? Wolfberry. Uh, There's all types of things you can do this with. Uh, Just be creative and understand you're not trying to make it look like uh, a farm. It's the last thing you want in a place like this, again, if you're not living there. Because if you're not living there and people see that there's that, type of uh, agriculture going on, you become more of a target. So, this is where I do start to agree with some of the people who go, how about a garden makes you a target? Well, being a human being and breathing makes you a target in a shit-in-the-fan situation. Existing makes you a target. Being seen makes you a target. So, I'm not worried about having some gardening stuff going on when I'm there. But when I'm not there, and when I get there, I rely on what's there, no. That's where those folks are right. You do have to have a kind of incognito attitude. Now, for the remote person, or even for the person that's not remote, I want to talk a little bit about the advantage of underground structures. There's there's multiple advantages to underground structures. First and foremost being that it is not visible to the naked eye. If we put in a good over underground structure, and if we plant stuff on top of it, all we have to hide is the door. And even a few inches of soil, two, three inches, creates a tremendous amount of insulation. And we end up with um, a covered structure that's very cool and yet doesn't freeze. And that is hugely advantageous for food storage. Because we can take a whole bunch of, you know, mountain house cans or something like that down into an underground structure like that. And uh, as long as we do everything right, we know they're going to stay dry. They know we're going to stay cool. And they're going to last a long, long time. We'll extend their storage life out to the maximum storage, like 10, 20 years. So there's a tremendous advantage there. If you happen to be on the property and are overrun and you can contain yourself and hide in there, well, you've got that going for you too. The more likely event, though, would be something like very strong storms, tornadic storms and things like that. you're in a good underground structure in a tornadic storm, you may lose everything above ground, but you're safe. I have never seen a tornado that has pulled an underground structure up out of the ground. I've seen tornadoes where people have gone below ground and the roof of that structure is above ground and it's been pulled away. Uh, like, say, a basement in a house. So the whole house is peeled off and the person that went down in the basement wasn't even safe in the basement. But if the structure is completely underground, I've never seen anything that could get that up out of the ground with a tornado. If that kind of tornado comes through, it's probably, you know, that 2012 stuff and we're done, right? <laughs> Not very likely. So, there's that advantage as well. So, you have concealment, you have a great climate control environment, uh, and you have a sound, defensible uh, structure against both natural and man-made threats. So, I think there's a huge advantage to underground structures. So, if you're going to go remote, you almost have to. If you're not going to be there, you almost have to have an underground house, right? If you're going to be somewhere in a community, it still makes sense to have an underground structure. Because if everything is overrun, even if, let's say that you're looted and the people that loot you that do overrun, you manage to take what they ha- you have, they don't get that, you still have something. And you keep the majority of what you have down there. If we ever get into a point where, and I hate to say this because I don't want to sound paranoid, but we have to be realistic here. If we ever get to a point where people are hungry everywhere and the government starts looking for people who have hoarded food and they come to your house, it would be great if you had like a week's supply of food so that they understand why you're not starving to death. But even if they took something from you, you know, you'd know, you still have something. Same with gun confiscations. So there's a tremendous advantage to that underground structure. So I think it's something everybody should consider. Now, how to do it. I saw something on Man Caves that was one of the coolest Man Caves. Man Caves is a TV show for you guys who don't know. Uh, one of the coolest Man Caves they ever had on there. And it was set up in the suburbs, and it was obvious where the entrance was, but it gave me a hell of an idea. What this guy did was buy a couple sections of that big-ass concrete pipe that they use for storm drains, and it wasn't cheap, but it really wasn't that expensive when you think about what the guy did with it. So he, put, he had a guy come in with a back hole and dig a great big trench. They put this concrete pipe together and put it down in the ground. He had a piece that went up almost like a... It almost looked like coming out of a, uh, what would you call it, a submarine. So that there was a couple feet of dirt on top of this tube of uh, concrete in the ground, and then this piece went down, and he had the side set so that there would be ventilation, and you could either go in through the top, which he really had made more of a skylight, and uh, or you could go in through the side, which he had made like kind of like a hobbit door, is what it reminded, like a hobbit door into a cave, and uh, of course so you had good ventilation down there and all. He put it's, the floor was rounded. And this was a big pipe where you could stand up in easily uh, as a six-foot-tall guy. He put kind of a wooden floor down, and that wooden floor made the floor level for walking on, and he put all kinds of crap down there, like, you know, a jukebox, and, uh, you know, he made it into a man cave, a real, honest-to-God, man cave. It kind of looked like a boat you were in or submarine you were in again. And it was cool, but it made me think that that's a very cheap building material, very, very rugged, very, very stable. Uh, can, it's designed to hold, to go underground and be buried. That's exactly what it's made for. It fits together like tinker, to, tinker Toys. You could make, basically, if you wanted to go all out, you could make an entire little complex out of this stuff. It would be expensive, but again, if you're going remote, what other option do you have to be secure without having all your stuff stolen? For the person with the, the small house on the few acres, one or two sections of this pipe, Buried in the ground with proper access, you have a storm shelter, you have environmental controls, you have a wine cellar if you like the veto the way that I do, you have a defensible structure, uh, you have a storm cellar, and you have a great place to cache a lot of food for long-term storage. So I thought that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And once it's installed and stuff's growing over, you could make that almost invisible to anyone who did not already know that it was there. There's a lot of ways that could be done, and there's a lot of ways that ventilation could be put in there. And there's one thing I've got to tell you is make sure if you put it in any underground structure, you have good ventilation. That's one of the most important things you can do. And you want concealed ventilation. If you did take up a defensive position and your ventilation was obvious, it could be used against you. Uh, That's a little bit of the military guy coming out of me, uh, like has to every once in a while. Let's talk about uh, the steel containers as well. A lot of people like those for bug out locations. I want to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good, cheap. The good, strong. The good, long-lasting. The good, reasonably secure with a lock, okay, and and fairly large. and can be adapted and turned into an entire house uh, if you're handy with a cutting torch. The bad, unless they're painted with a special uh, insulating material, it's oven. You'll bake in there. And all your storage items will bake in there. So not great for food storage unless you create some kind of a shade factor around it. And it's still going to get pretty hot. So there's this uh, special paint that they make that when they build houses out of them, they paint it with this. And it has some crazy R value, like R28 or something. So it's like equivalent 28 inch to R28 insulation, and it's just a paint. That increases the cost, though. Uh The bad. Unless they're completely covered with some kind of a paint or an epoxy, eventually will rust and rust through. Uh, again, the bad, they get hot. Um, again, they're visible. And since they're visible, uh, they're a security risk. The ugly, they're ugly. There is, they, they do not look good, folks. I'm sorry. And because they're ugly, they're an attraction. They're an attraction to that vermin we want to avoid. I have heard of people burying them into the ground, but eventually you're going to have problems with them rusting through. You bury steel in moist ground, and sooner or later it will rust. Now, I've talked to people that have talked about ways to coat it so that it won't rust, usually involving encasement in concrete. Well, why not just build a structure in concrete in the first place? So the storage containers, the steel containers, these are the big shipping containers that you see on the boats, So they put them on a truck, and they, they ship goods from China here, and this is what I'm talking about if you're not familiar with them. Uh, they have it. They have some advantage, but I, I don't really like them for a lot of their downside. If you live on property again, if it's a homestead and you bring one in and you set it up with shade and insulation and everything, and you're using it as a storage facility, they're actually quite good for that. But if something you're going to leave out there by itself, it becomes again an attractive nuisance. I think it makes you more likely to be bothered by someone that would come steal or vandalize than other things. Because if you have something like that, the person that doesn't know you're a survivalist, that just knows you're there, looks at that and says, that's a big metal container. There must be something valuable in there. And they're right. And they're probably not thinking the same way you are about what valuable means. But that means i got to figure out how to break in there so I can steal that stuff. So that's, that's my downside with them on a remote location. Unless you have, again... Good line-of-sight neighbor to keep an eye on your property. If you got that, that opens up a lot more possibilities. But for the remote location, do not like them at all. Um, as a freestanding structure, they've got to be hidden somewhere. Away. And I think every time you hide them, you run the risk of uh, environmental damage to them uh, over time. The, I broke that in there because a lot of people ask me about it. Focusing a little bit more on the property, i got to say this. Water on property is golden. It's the most important commodity you can look for when you're selecting a piece of land. Even if it's a seasonal stream that only runs 9 out of 12 months, it's a huge advantage. Uh, because you can go down there and into a seasonal stream and you can create little dams and things that extend how long there's extra water around. Um, it is probably the most important component that you can have to a piece of property is to have some water on it. Uh I'll tell you, if you're going to do remote or if you're buying a piece of property that doesn't have a structure on it yet, the best option you may have is a low-cost RV that you can tow with you when you come in. Keep it well stocked. And there's a lot of used ones out there for sale right now that are for sale for a song. And a good storage facility, and I mean a lockable, typical, you store it type, you know, U-Haul storage, something like that, somewhere between you and the place that you're going. And the closer to where you're going, the better. People are going to come up with a million reasons why that's not a great plan. Those reasons are valid. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm saying it's a hell of a lot better than the alternative of having nothing or having everything at this remote location and having no security around it. You know, it it just really beats the alternative. Because what's the alternative is um, you, you put a structure on the property which is vandalized and completely cleaned out and stolen or maybe even burned down by some scum. Uh, you put no structure on the property whatsoever. You show up with a tent and only what you, with what you can carry. And you can't carry as much as you think you can. If you doubt that, go figure out how many of your preps you could take with you if you had to leave today. And you'll be shocked at how much you'll have to leave behind. Uh, or having a bunch of food and things like that stashed in an underground uh, facility and actually having it there when you get there, but having to sleep in a tent. So, I think the RV storage unit is also a great, or a great transitional thing. So, what that allows you to do is remember, when we prep, we're not just prepping for disaster and doom and gloom. I love my bug out location right now. Eventually, it'll be my home. We're trying to do that this summer. You've got the wife dragging her feet a little bit, folks, if you're wondering why I'm not already there. Um, but everything's ready to go. We just have to sell this place and go. Until then, it's a great vacation home. We go up there every couple months and we hang out and it's, it saves us money because we're not taking vacations across the country and paying hotel bills and things like that. Uh, but of course, we have a house and we have that small community and we have that neighbor that's keeping an eye on the place for us and all. But even if we didn't, and now that we're RV owners as well, you tow the RV out there, maybe you even have the electric, if, there's, if the availability is there, have the electric company put electric in there for you. Pay for it, it'll pay itself back. First time you plug it in and you have all the conveniences of home, uh, it'll make a lot of sense. Generators, great idea to have at a bug out location, great idea to have with a bug out vehicle, great idea to have with an RV, any and all in between. But you can only store so much fuel for a generator. It is a short-term solution. So you also want to look at alternative energy, even if small-scale, small-scale solar and wind, something that can produce a kilowatt a day. It brings a lot of conveniences uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have. Simply things like uh, lighting uh, are so valuable, being able to have that, and to be able to run a couple power tools here and there uh, to do certain things. It really shortens... Uh, A a lot of things. One of the things that I've come in touch with is how great a sawzall uh, is for uh, cutting wood uh, off trees. Now, not big, giant trees. That's much more uh, attuned for a chainsaw. But smaller branches up to about four inches in diameter, which, by the way, makes great firewood. So, long-term bug-out situation, you have small-scale solar. You're low on gasoline or out of gasoline, or you have some, but really don't want to use it for a chainsaw. The chainsaw also makes a lot of noise, gives away your location for a lot longer distance, and you might need that gas to go somewhere in the vehicle, so you're really rationing. If you have small scale solar and a DeWalt Sawzall and a couple backup batteries, um, you have a lot of wood cutting capability, and that saw is light. You can carry it off and find other places and you know bring back a reasonable supply of firewood every day. Uh, I've been doing that up at the bug out location just because it's lighter and easier to use than a chainsaw. So unless I'm cutting larger trees, I've been using my Sawzall. Uh, Blades are cheap. Uh, You can buy a ton of blades for a few bucks, and you have uh, a very large amount of cutting that can be done. Again, small-scale solar gives you the ability to do that, even just a couple batteries and an inverter and a couple solar panels. Uh, That is a huge thing. So having that either cached at that storage facility, in an RV at the remote location, in an underground structure, uh, in your in your little house if you have that, if it's, again, something that can be watched and, and kind of looked after by a neighbor. But that's just a huge thing that you really want to consider adding into there. Guns, ammo, trapping gear, and fishing equipment. I'll do all at once today because I think that there's something we can't leave out. With guns and ammo, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to say it one time so I don't sound like uh, I'm paranoid, but... Uh, really good PVC pipe completely uh, sealed up uh, from any kind of moisture. And a post hole digger are your best friends when it comes to guns and ammo. To so at least make sure you have a shotgun and a rifle available on that property that no one will ever find, no matter who they are. Um, you can do that with low cost guns. I mean you can make it a uh, you know a Marlin Model 60 or a Ruger 1022 and you can store a couple thousand rounds of ammunition with that weapon. Uh you can take a decent pump shotgun, take it apart, do the same thing. Uh a little bit harder to store some ammunition, but maybe a third pipe and you can store a few hundred rounds of 12 gauge ammunition as well. Uh PVC pipe sealed up with uh, cement is designed to go underground and be waterproof. That's what it's for. So you can rest assured that'll happen. Make sure you mark them well uh, somehow where only you would know and you can go get them back out. Understand when you bury things like that, especially if you do it with a post hole digger, it can be very, very difficult to get out of the ground. Uh, the ground will tend to shrink around it, so you may want to consider not burying it with a post hole digger, but burying it um, long ways. It may be much easier to eventually get out of the ground, but there's no doubt the other way is uh, a little bit more secure. that's that scenario, you want to guard and protect and make sure that only you and maybe a spouse uh, and maybe kiddos, if they're old enough, know where those weapons are, are cached. In a survival situation, it may be the most important prep you have is to be well-armed. Uh, again, it's not something I talk about a tremendous amount about because there's a million sources for good information on firearms. But if we get in any of these really bad situations, there will be people that want to do you harm. And the gun is the great equalizer. So training on how to use it, Yes. Guns that are immediately accessible, yes, but some reserve, absolutely, and your bug out location is a great place to have that. And I really recommend at least a rifle and a shotgun and some rounds for both, stored in a way where you know they're not going to rust, well-oiled, cosmolined up, uh, wrapped in, in, in cloth or paper, stored uh, with ammunition. And it's not going too far. Don't let anybody tell you that it is. And don't let anybody tell you that you're some kind of, like, you know, Tim hat freak because you've done that. Because the day that you're on your way to your bug location and uh, martial law has been declared and your guns are seized, at least when you get where you're going, you still have a means of defense and you're not defenseless. So that is something I definitely, definitely, definitely recommend at your bug location. I also recommend seeds, garden supplies, and things like that. Good survival seed bank, um, additional seeds. Every time you save some seeds, vacuum seal some, uh, take them with you next time you go visit your bug out location. Build up a good storehouse of seeds. That's another thing that really should be stored underground, simply for the climate control beyond just people uh, maybe stealing it from you, but creating some kind of a little mini, I don't want to call it a bunker, but I guess that's the best way to, to describe it. You know, just some kind of a mini little root cellar that you could keep well-secured, dry seed in uh, is huge. Because if you have seed, you have a future. If you have no seeds, you have no future when it comes to having to provide for yourself. And in a bug-out location, farming may be a big thing. And think about seeds of things that will grow quickly, uh, provide sustenance, and think about calorie crop seeds. So there's actually actual true seeds for potatoes. Most people start them from tubers, but you can't store those uh, in a remote location for a very long time. Uh, it also makes a lot of sense maybe to do some in your plantings, some things that are calorie crops. One of the things you can plant that will just grow and come back and grow and come back, especially through most of the south, it won't, won't die over winter It'll just die back, is sweet potato. Uh, sweet potato is a great thing to have growing all around. Now, once it's in its second and third year, those tubers aren't going to be great to eat, but they're going to be a source to produce more. I also want you to think about storing some fertilizer. Now, I know I'm Mr. Organic, and I really am, and uh, I try to use organic fertilizers whenever I can. I believe that organic gardening is the way to go, but if you have a few sacks of plain old you know, general-purpose fertilizer In that first year, when you're having to rely on producing or starving, it will make your food grow. All right? So it's not the long-term solution. And you want to be building soil in a place that's not being touched with that stuff at the same time. But for a year or two, if we got into that kind of a long-term survival situation, you want to grow corn and you're starting from scratch, it's going to be very hard to do it without fertilizer. And storing an organic fertilizer in a remote location, a large quantity, uh, it just doesn't work as well. So I am a proponent of having some fertilizer, at least, again, for that first crop. Uh, Hopefully you'll never use it. Hopefully you'll never have to use it uh, because it does damage the soil. It does damage soil organisms. It is not the preferred method. But if i got to grow something, and if I don't have food up and growing and productive by May, um, I'll use it. And there are certain plants, there are certain crops that, again, without a couple of years to really get the soil going, you, you can't produce. And corn is one of them. You want to grow corn, and it's a great survival crop. It really is. Uh, as long as you're actually there you're not remote, um, it stores well. It's, uh, it's, a, it's the easiest grain there is to grow. But it's very nutrient demanding. So until so you have that rich deep loam built up because uh, you've been homesteading a place for a while and you're in an emergency situation, that fertilizer is absolutely gold. It can also be used for other things we won't talk about. All right. Um, you have to go with long-term sh- uh, food storage items at your remote locations, your bug out locations, whatever. Even the, you know, the little community place like I have. Uh, you have to go with you know the mountain house, the providing pantries, stuff like that. The eat what you store, store what you eat works great as long as it's where you live. If you get to a place, let's say, six times a year, and you're there for four days, it's 24 days. So you're going to eat 24 days worth of food in a year. So if you go with one-year storable items, the maximum amount of storage time you can do with eat what you store, store what you eat is about 24 days worth of food. Stretching it with some stuff that will go a little bit longer, okay, we can push that to 30 days. 30 days is the absolute maximum unless you're up there every other week because you're just not consuming enough to keep the rotation going. The other way you can do it is to, to do the small tub approach, and we did this for a while until we built up our long-term storables, where we take a, a tub of, be where we store, store weed we eat stuff, a big rubber made tub, and we have a mirror tub back here at the house, and we know exactly what needs to go in there. So when we go to Arkansas to our bug out location, we take our mirror tub and we leave it and we take the other one and we bring it home and we consume that food immediately. So that way that food can be rotated like every 60 days on that bi-monthly time that we get up there, right? So that's one way you could do it. So that could extend it, what, another couple of weeks? But you're really limited with food that's one-year storable typical supermarket food at a remote location. So, if you can get it up to 45 days, that'll get you through a lot. To go beyond that, since you don't have the, the, the day-to-day rotation going on, you're going to have to go to those long-term storables. So, accept that. Start making it a plan. Start making it part of your budget if you're going to have a bug-out location. And in addition to that maybe 30, 20 to 30 days you have of uh, random stuff, try to get at least 60 days. I don't think you are 90. 90 days' worth of food will get you through most things that we would ever have to bug out for. The long-term bug out, you would be better off with a year's supply of food. I know that sounds like a lot to some people. Uh, But if you have that, you have an awful lot of assurance that you're going to make it through just about anything that comes your way. And you're going to have enough extra in a short-term situation that you could help that old lady neighbor uh, if you had to. Because you don't want to turn people away if you don't have to. Uh, We're not the cold-hearted people some people make us out to be. We have a, I think some of us have a a fears on some level rational and some level irrational. That because we're prepared, everybody else will want to rely on us. Well, with the right location, most people won't even know that you're there to rely on. But those that do, if you can help them, you really want to. You don't want to send people away hungry to die. And that may be what you're doing if you tell that old lady, I can't help you. And if you're sitting on a year's supply of food, you're probably not going to have to do it. Alright, just something to think about there. I want to end today with my personal choice and why I prefer it. Uh, not to try to convince you that I'm right, not so that you'll try to do the same thing, but because it will help you understand why I made the choice and maybe give you a way of looking at it that you haven't done before. I prefer the small community for a variety of reasons. It does provide the additional security uh, that I'm looking for. It also makes the property somewhat more inherently valuable if I get into a different type of survival situation. We've talked an awful lot today about what we would do where we would need to go to a bug out location. But what if our, our situation is financial distress? And we've lost a job, we've lost a business, we've gone through a divorce, whatever it is, we're financially destitute. Having that remote piece of land and having it in kind of a nice community location where somebody could actually live day to day, where somebody would want to live day to day, where there's, you know, a fairly large number of people that would want to buy a property there, makes that land a true investment. Meaning that if I have to, I could sell it. And I could sell it relatively quickly, and I could harvest capital back out of it and fix my financial problems. So that's another reason I like that. I also like being near small towns. I like to be able to get into a place and be able to buy stuff and get stuff and not be so remote that I have to do without even in good times. The small town is a lot less likely to break down into total disarray than the big city. The big city has too many people bottled up too close together to where it is a powder keg and it's inevitable that it's going to happen. When there's looting and rioting in small towns, what happens is townspeople are a different sort of people than city people. Instead of wanting to get out, instead of holding up, they don't like to see their town torn apart. And most of the small towns throughout America, people are armed, and people are decent, good people. And when that type of activity starts to go on, they call them volunteer sheriffs. Uh, They deploy, and individuals deploy, and they put a cap back on the situation really soon. I'm not saying it can't be totally lost, but I'm saying it's containable for a lot longer period of time, which means if you've bugged out to a location, society is spiraling down, the cities are already in flames, you have more time that you can utilize, utilize the resources of that small town before it spirals all the way out to where you're at, and get as many resources that you're lacking up till that point acquired, moved back to that bug out location and solidified before the problem reaches you. In other words, would you want to hear the advancing army is coming and will be here tomorrow, or the advancing army is coming and will be here in two weeks if you're a general? In two weeks, you have a lot of tactical time to think about what you're doing and set up defensive positions, right? If um, If you don't, have that leeway of time, then you get overrun. And that's what's going to happen to a lot of people in the cities. That's why I'm a big fan of having the bug out location in the first place. And it's why I like the balance point of the small community relatively close to the small town as opposed to way out in the middle of of the boonies. However, if you're way out in the middle of the boonies and you like it there, I support your decision. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm really talking more to the person that lives somewhere Uh, day-to-day and works a normal job and is surrounded by people every day and is looking for that remote location to get away. That remote location that's that far out is really hard to keep a lid on when you're gone, where the more people you have around you uh, that are good, solid people without being too crowded and too pushed, the more stable the situation gets. You even see it here in Arlington, right in the middle of the city, right in the middle of town, where we have houses that have been up for sale for a while, And most of them have actually, I I don't know, the real estate market in this area seems to have picked up. There's very few houses for sale anymore. But a year ago, in the middle of the dip, we had probably 10 houses that were for sale throughout the neighborhood. They were all completely empty. Not one of them got broken into. I guarantee you an empty house sitting out in the middle of nowhere uh, would have gotten broken into uh, just to strip whatever they could. What kept people from breaking in is the the very presence of other human beings around. There is a balance point, and all I'm suggesting is that under your comfort zone, you try to find the balance point that meets the best for you. The survival commune type concept, where you're going to get five people, and you're going to buy 100 acres, and you're going to build it up, and everybody takes a piece and all, it can work. Most instances where it's been tried, I've heard about it has failed. Because people have different ideas of what they want. I think you're better off owning your own place, controlling your own place, setting your own rules, and hopefully bringing people that are adjacent to you into a like mentality, but not under a requirement that you do things their way or they do things your way or one resenting the other for not pulling their weight. So not big on that. I hope this has been a good show for you guys. I do need to wrap up today. I'm actually expecting a call in about 15 minutes from Eric Shelton. I'm going to be a guest on the Handgun Podcast again with him. I'll let you know when that that time comes around uh, to go listen to that show. And with that, I just want you to be realizing, or I just want you to realize, that you control your life and that things like setting up a remote location for yourself, a fallback location, a bug out location, whatever you want to call it, is not going too far. And the worst thing that happens if you do it the right way is you create another investment for yourself. And right now, I'd rather be holding a nice five-acre piece of rural property than anything on paper in a 401k plan. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.